Whether it's dismantling the fossil fuel industry, creating a solar-powered utopia, or simply desiring to hear more birds in the sky than planes, this is Idealistically, a podcast where we discuss what we would idealistically want in an ideal world. Hello and welcome back to Idealistically. I'm your host, Tomea Gregory, an artist and climate justice activist based in the UK, trying to inspire more people to envision the world more radically and start thinking more about what they want in the future when hopefully we have come to a place of climate and social justice. Gonna be real, I'm feeling a little stressed at the moment. I'm trying to edit as much of the podcast that I can do before it goes out to you. Um, Obviously, it's live and kicking (laughs) now that you're listening to this, but June is a really busy month for me. But the more I have these conversations and the more I have these sorts of conversations in real life, the more I just keep coming back to them and the more they refuel me. And I hope that that is the case for people who are listening because... Yeah, there's just such a joy in thinking about the future in more of a hopeful way. Yeah, it's quite it's quite grounding for me, which is interesting after so long of kind of focusing on the doom and gloom. And I've been having these conversations kind of out in the wild, out in real life. I recently took this sort of question to um, a local children's event and had the kids answer the question, in the future, I want to see. And it was so lovely. I think the most magical part about it was, was seeing the kids kind of go in without thinking whether it was too unrealistic or whether people would judge them like there was just no barrier for them it was just straight in I want to see more rainbows I want to see more Pokemon and also you know kids will be kids and someone wrote your mum so (laughs) yeah just a really kind of it can be a really joyful thing to have these conversations but also there's room for kind of the sadness and the grief and stuff that kids write down and you just think god I I hope that one day we can give that to you you know people coming along and and writing down things like peace and and more love and more happiness and it's just like you want to bundle up kids and you want to like protect them as much as you can and knowing that the world is in such a place that it's just so difficult um but this is why they have these conversations to balance both to balance the joy and to balance the heartbreak so yeah We're going to have another conversation today, someone who I have respected and admired for many, many years, someone who has always supported my work as much as I have supported them. So I hope you enjoy listening. This is just a little disclaimer before the start of this episode that the audio during this one isn't quite where I'd want it to be. Every episode I record is done by myself with no producer and all done remotely. So please bear with me. Um, I've tried my best to kind of edit around the technical issue that I had. Um, However, yeah, if it's not quite as good as usual, I really do apologise. But I hope it is still worth a listen and that you still get lots of good stuff out of it. Thank you for joining me. As I ask everyone to do, would you like to introduce yourself in whatever way suits you and how you describe yourself and what you do? Who are you? (laughs) Yes. Hi, I am Whitney Bauk. Um, I am a journalist. I'm an independent journalist who writes about the intersection of climate and culture and business and a bunch of other things. Um, I write for a wide range of um, international newspapers and magazines, including the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Grist, 
Atmos and a bunch of others. So my work is, yeah, sort of looking at climate as it intersects with our daily lives and the institutions that impact our daily lives. A perfect introduction. And um, I've known your work for, I feel like, many years now. So it's nice to have you on and have this conversation. I, I like having conversations with people who have, like, influenced me already because I feel like I can... I don't know. It's interesting to see how they can then influence my idea of an ideal world as well. I have a very quick fire question before I jump into more about your ideal world. And that is from Together Band, who are supporting this season of the podcast. Which UN Sustainable Development Goal aligns most with you and your work? I feel like the one that aligns most with sort of what I think about is climate action. <laughs> Um, but in terms of my actual work, probably responsible consumption and production, because I do a lot of writing about sort of that intersection. To get a feel for where you're at at the moment, do you currently find it easy to envision an ideal world or is it a little bit more tricky? How are you feeling? I feel like it definitely depends on the day. Um, as I was telling you a little bit before we started recording, I'm like in the middle of a really crazy season of just kind of going, going, going. And I think my ideal world involves a lot more like rest and stillness. And so it can be harder to picture that even just in terms of like the pace. Um, but I also feel like I have, I've seen glimpses of my ideal world like happening already in this world. And those are the things that make it like, okay, there are people who are figuring out how to do some of the things even now in the midst of and in between all the madness. Um, and that, that sort of paints a picture of like what it might look like to move forward. Yeah. So I guess, would you say it's more just like finding the time to imagine it? That is kind of the, the big one at the moment. Maybe. And I think, I mean, I love the sort of premise of this podcast in that it's a it's really like, let's carve out the time to, you know, sort of build the imagination for this. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the things I think about um, a fair bit, especially in terms of like arts and culture is like, I have a very strong sense that our, our artists are the ones who need to help us sort of build our imagination. And if we don't, you know, if we don't have the sort of imaginative framework, it's really hard to get there, right? So I'm, you have probably talked about um, I mean, I guess I don't know. Adrian Marie Brown and like Octavia Butler, the sort of way that Adrian Marie Brown talks about Octavia Butler and the sort of idea that like all organizing is science fiction, basically like it's, it's having the capacity to imagine what the world you want to see looks like. And I, I genuinely do believe that like carving out the time and space to be intentional with our imaginations um, is really important. And so I love I love that you are sort of doing that on this podcast. And I think for me, it's like in the middle of these like two sort of insane weeks, this is a sort of in-between thing. It's, it's both like, oh, in some ways I'm not at my like most Zen rested best to sort of imagine these things. And in other ways, it's kind of perfect because it's like, yeah, I, I want to be taking the time to build my own imagination for the things that I believe in and I want to see, even when I'm not operating out of like some amazing yoga infused well-rested you know perfect place because we have to be able to imagine it from the world as it is and sometimes that means you know moving at a pace that we don't actually believe 
will exist in our ideal world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's very rare that many of us are in that <laughs> Zen yoga state very often. Um, so yeah, totally um, relate to that. And, and thank you for speaking of nice things about my podcast. I appreciate that. Actually, you saying that you write for Atmos. I have a copy of the latest um, issue like over in the corner of my room. And um, yeah, I think Adrian Marie Brown is, is in this issue talking exactly about that, like science fiction. So I'm very excited to delve into that. I feel like I just I actually feel like this podcast has come at a great time that more and more people are starting to talk about like imagination. So it's very exciting to see it in like more of a, I guess, Atmos isn't too mainstream, but like it's reaching a lot more people. So that's exciting to me. Okay, so let's close your eyes. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you envision your ideal world? What is Whitney's ideal world looking like? <laughs> Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is walkable communities, which is like not what I would have said even probably a couple years ago. But there's a sort of like joke that's been going around the internet for however long that Americans talk about college is like the best years of their life and it's because that's the only time in their lives that they live in like small walkable communities where they're like they live near everyone they know um which seems like sort of a silly thing but it's feels actually very profound to me like a lot of the kind of like we were just saying everything is interconnected so not to like pin everything on one thing but I think some of the problems that I think about a lot um their solution would wouldn't all be like big policy crazy whatever it would be really like small and local and i i think it's like this touches on some of their like relational needs that i see people having that aren't met this touches on like mental health things this touches on sort of like our climate impact in the way that we live you know and we're living such sort of like globalized and really fractured lives it's hard to live sort of within planetary boundaries um and this idea of like living in a small community where you know people you can get around in a really low carbon way just like without trying just because that's how it is to me is like yeah it sounds really ideal and in some ways it's like it's it's just the default for people in a lot of parts of the world and they don't even have other options but i think especially as sort of like my experience of life in the u.s has been we tend to be really divorced from the land so we don't we don't tend to have a lot of especially in places like new york city which is where i live we don't tend to have a, a a really deep relationship with the specific place that we live and um we often don't know our neighbors and we don't you know and we don't expect to stay somewhere for a long time so i think this idea of like a real rootedness that that is both rootedness in the community around you and the people around you and also rootedness in the specific place where you are um, that's sort of the, the, that's maybe what I idealize. And I know there are, you know, I know there are pitfalls that come from living in that way in the real world in you know, sort of small communities in that way. But that's, that's what it's easy for me to fantasize about because it feels in some ways very far from life as I experience it. I love that. And I love a fresh new answer we haven't had before. So yes. <laughs> and I actually, that reminds me of, I always bring up like tweets I've seen recently because I find Twitter, you can pick parts of these conversations up very, very easy. And I saw someone um, talking about like, is like 25 minutes a walkable distance for you? And it just like the replies of people like saying like, what? Like that's really far or whatever. And it like really speaks to how actually like, 
depending on where you live, this idea of walking and being able to reach everything that you needed within a kind of certain time frame is so different from different people's perspectives. Like for me, like 25 minutes is getting from my house into like the center of my town. But for some people, that's wouldn't even think about it. Like that's what you have to get in the car. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really interesting one for sure. Yeah. Well, in New York, I don't, I don't mean to just like hate on New York in many ways. The reason I live, one of the reasons I still live in New York is that it is a far more walkable place than most of the U S. So I really can walk. I can walk to the grocery store. I can walk to my nearest subway stop. I can walk to the park. Um, you know, there's a lot of things about it that are really walkable and, and even like if you're trying to get a really far distance, like there was some time recently where I was just like in the mood. And so I, this isn't going to mean anything to you if you don't know New York well, but like I walked from Chelsea to Brooklyn and I like walked across the bridge and that's not walkable in the sense of being like a walkable distance, but it's walkable in that like there was no part of that time where I felt like I was not safe because I didn't have like space on the roadway. You know what I mean? Like we have sidewalks and we have a city that's really oriented around people walking where there are where there are cities that that's not true in, especially in the U.S. Like they're so car centric that if you're trying to get from one side of town to the other, and even if you said I want to take a two hour walk, and I'm willing to go that far, you wouldn't be able to do it safely um, because there's not the infrastructure really to support walking. So I I like it's not like I'm saying oh no cars ever, but I do I do really like a place like New York that makes walking feel like very easy. And in New York, someone saying, you know, a 25 minute walk, I'm like, oh yeah, that's no big deal. Like when I had, when I have family come visit me, I forget what's like a normal walking distance to Americans who live outside of New York. <laughs> Cause I think here we're so used to walking a lot. Like we are a very walking friendly city. And so to me it'd be like, oh yeah, 20 minute walk to get somewhere unless it's freezing is like no big deal. Um, but that's not necessarily true for all of the U S. Yeah. And also like the point about walking is like, like you say, like different places don't have the infrastructure also for like accessibility needs and people who are using wheelchairs and stuff. Like the other day I was walking down a road near me and we're not all anti-car here, but maybe a little bit. <laughs> there was like a whole like, like a pavement, a sidewalk that was just cars. And I was like, hang on, that's supposed to be for people and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, we had so far to go to just make the, the the simplest things more easy for people. Yeah. Well, and in really walkable spaces too. I mean, there are there's a kind of accessibility that comes with that. But in other ways, like New York is wildly inaccessible if you're using a wheelchair because there's like our subway system, depending on what you're comparing it to, is either really great or really terrible. If you're comparing it to a lot of the rest of the U.S., it's like really great because you can actually use it to get around. If you're comparing it to a lot of Europe, it's not so great because it's not like clean and pretty and as regular and whatever. But either way, it's a functional subway system in that it's a great way to get around if you're not using a wheelchair or have some other disability that makes, you know, like using stairs hard or whatever. And that's a thing that is also theoretically, when we talk about walkable cities, so to speak, it's not actually just for people who are walking that that makes it better. Like to have communities where things are nearby, where there are like good sidewalks with like good access. It makes it easier for people who are walking. It also makes it people easier for people with disabilities. It also makes it easier, you know, like it's not, we're using walking as sort of a symbol for something that, you know, maybe has broader sort of applications. Yeah, definitely.
So moving on a tiny bit, you said at the start, there are some things that you can already see in this world for your ideal one. So that's one of my questions. What would you keep from the current reality and the current version of this world for a better future? Well, I'm like, this might also coincide with another question. But I mean, I think the I think that I see there are little pockets of communities that I think are already doing some of the things that I'm I'm really interested in and that give me a lot of hope. And as I was thinking about this, I was realizing like a lot of them are pretty agriculture based, which is interesting because I, I mean, I do think about agriculture a lot, but also like I live in Brooklyn, like I'm, <laughs> I am in some ways very far from that. But um, Red Hook Farms is an, an urban farm here in the city that I feel like is a really great example of like people doing it right. Um, they're based in Red Hook, which is a neighborhood that is sort of on the edge of Brooklyn and really kind of on the front lines of the climate crisis within our own city. So they're very like prone to flooding just based on where they are and based on sort of the lay of the land. It's in a, this neighborhood is a food desert in a lot of ways. There's not a lot of really great food access. Um, it's also not super easy to get to by public transit. So despite all these things I was saying about public transit in this city, Red Hook is a place that like has been a little bit left out of some of that. But Red Hook Farms and the Red Hook Initiative, which is sort of the umbrella organization that Red Hook Farms came out of, is like doing this really, really amazing work around food justice in this in this neighborhood and also climate resilience. So they grow organic vegetables and they have chickens and they have bees. And if you live in New York City, it feels like kind of a miracle because you're just like, you know, you're going through the concrete jungle so to speak and then you come upon this land that's like all of this beautiful growth and um they're you know working with people in the community to grow things they use also use volunteer work from sort of like outside the community there's a there's a like housing project that's right by one of their plots of land and the people that live in that project get they get access to a lot of the food and they also get to like make choices about what grows there so even if they're not putting in the time to grow it because maybe they don't have time they're getting to like call the shots about what's being grown there and what they're going to have access to. And it's just a, to me, it feels like a really beautiful model of understanding how like food sovereignty, climate resilience, connection to the land, um, doing things on a hyper local level sort of like all come together. And I feel really grateful for organizations like that, that are trying to, like, they're kind of already doing the thing. They're not saying, yeah, we're going to someday down the road, this would be our ideal. It's like, we're making it happen right now within the constraints of this very like broken system and, you know, broken city in some ways, like we're, we're making the really beautiful community and like life that we want to see happen now. I love that. That sounds very wholesome. It also gives me the way that you're describing it. I've been digging more into like solar punk recently. Mm. And I feel like a lot of the kind of art and imagery that comes out of that is very like urban focused. And so I was just imagining it like in the middle of the city or whatever. And that sounds very much like solar punk vibes I don't know if it actually is but yeah yeah you're right in that that kind of does answer what my other question was going to be which was like is there a place that kind of like transports you to that kind of ideal world and that definitely sounds like it yeah I mean there are other examples of that too that I can please feel free (laughs) (laughs) I mean another another one that comes to mind is the this is like less of a sort of clearly defined thing in some ways but the fiber shed community is like a a network of people that are thinking about agriculture and fiber production um, 
and the there are sort of hubs all over the U.S. and maybe beyond the U.S. now too. But the the sort of original hub was in Northern California, and you know, you and I both have sort of a background in fashion. It's not the only thing that either of us is doing now. But I think that when I there are a lot of conversations about the apparel sector that I'm like not that interested in having anymore. Um, there are just ways that I'm like. I want to have broader conversations about climate things, but Fibershed feels like if we're going to build a functional culture around what we wear um, that, that operates within planetary boundaries, I feel like Fibershed is doing some of the work to show the way. And some of that is about how they're, you know, how they're growing fibers. So whether that's cotton or wool or, you know, whatever the case may be, they're, they're doing these really amazing things around sort of the community they're building, um, the farmers that are involved, the textile artists that are involved, they get all these people together, they're doing training, they're also doing research, they're like partnering with academics nearby to like, learn about microplastics in their area and learn about um, soil carbon and like how to best measure that and what sort of regenerative agricultural practices best hold on to that they're like trying to learn from indigenous people in their area about how the land has been managed before settlers came um they're trying to like sort of bring all of these different people together and i think they also feel like you know again imperfect a work in progress it's humans so of course it's going to be flawed but i feel like so much of the work they're doing feels like really generative to me in in moving towards I think I can feel really hopeless about fashion a lot of the time. I can feel really hopeless about how clothing is made. and Big mood. Yeah, right? It's really, I mean, I just saw, like, before getting on here, I just saw a graph that was comparing production of, you know, a bunch of the big fast fashion majors. And it was, like, you know, H&M and Zara and a bunch of these ones we think as being, as being really huge. And then there was Shein just outweighing all of them by, like, more than tenfold. And, you know, like whatever you think about some of these other ones, we can at least sort of have conversations about what responsibility looks like with them. Like Shein's not even interested in that conversation. So I think I can feel very hopeless about what is happening in that space. And then there's the fiber sheds of the world who are like, yeah, we're not operating at the scale of a Shein, but in our own little pocket, like we're trying to do things really well. And we're, we're trying to show what it would look like to sort of live in a way that clothing making works within planetary boundaries, is really connected to community, is really local, um, and is really just like generative and, and aware of, you know, sort of the cultural issues, the climate issues, all of that that sort of comes together in, in the apparel sector. Thank you for sharing both of those examples of things that are already being done to kind of create an idea world. I think that is the kind of action that like actually does I'm sure with you, like brings me a lot of hope. Like we're not having to wait for people to figure out what we're going to do. Like actually having it already in places is what we need more of for sure. To give people kind of more of an understanding of where all of this comes from and kind of how you've built your ideal version of the world. Do you want to like talk a little bit more about what you do as a journalist? Maybe dive into a little bit of, um, yeah, how you've gone from fashion to kind of similarly to me to just being like, I'm going to talk about the climate crisis. Yeah. So I, I mean, my background was in, I I basically built the sustainability beat at a fashion news website. So I was there for four and a half years, I was writing a lot about human rights. And I was also like writing a lot about the environmental impacts um, and left a, a little over a year ago to sort of do broader 
climate reporting. I'm going to say a little bit about what a reporter does, which maybe seems obvious, but I actually think that both young people and like really grown adults don't fully understand what journalists do as opposed to like what other sort of people in media do. So when I'm writing a story, let's say I'm writing about uh, regenerative agriculture and I'm trying to understand, you know, what is that and trying to explain what that is and whatever to my readers. I'm doing research. I'm starting with research, you know, sort of seeing what's online, seeing what's already out there, reading whatever I can. And then I'm going and talking to whoever the experts are in the field. And I'm, you know, I'm going to have interviews with them. Um, I'm going to sort of see from them who else I should be talking to. And let's say what I deliver in the end to my editor is a thousand word article, um, which is, you know, a few pages. That's like three pages, maybe. What I have to back that is probably going to be 65 pages of interviews. Um, so I really like every time I'm presenting something to the world in the form of an article I've written, it's backed by and that's that's primary sources. That's not even like the research of things that other people have written about it. That's that's conversations I'm having with experts about the thing. Um, and then that's going to an editor who is going to look over what I've written, see if it seems legit. It's going to go to a fact checker who's going to see any sort of like facts that I present. If it's true or not, they're going to look for sort of evidence of that. They're going to they might reach out to those people I talked to and be like, hey, is this really what you said? Or is this really true? So by the time a journalist who does what the kind of work I do presents something to the world, there's a lot to back up what we're saying. Um, and being really thorough is part of what I like pride myself on. It's like, I'm going to go really, really deep and I'm going to make sure I know way more than can ever fit in the article itself. So I'm going to have a ton of background knowledge just to be able to make sure that I really like know what I'm talking about. And I say all that because I think it's important to understand what journalism is as opposed to like, you know, you might see an infographic from a thing on Instagram and that might be how you get your info. And I totally understand that's how a lot of us are getting access to information these days. But I think it's really important to understand where the information is coming from and sort of the, the, the quality of research that went into bringing that information to you. Um, and there's a difference between, you know, sort of finding something that someone else has written a blog one time and going directly to the, the person who did the research that published the scientific paper that then got covered by other media and really asking, like asking the researcher, asking the scientist, um, you know, tell me about this thing, because anyone who's, who's doing that kind of work, they're probably like me. There's like a ton that gets left on the cutting room floor that you're not going to end up seeing. So my work as a journalist is really trying to like dig to the bottom of things and make sure that I am presenting an extremely well backed and like well researched piece of information um, that's based on primary sources. Amazing. I, one thing I love about doing these, having these conversations is the fact that I'm always learning things. So like, I feel like I had a, a good idea, but then it's like, yes. And it also makes me admire you more because that's an incredible amount of work to have to put, like to have, like you say, like maybe like 60 pages of stuff that never makes it out is like mind blowing to me. And the reason I ask that is because I'm really interested to know like what you think a journalist's role is when it comes to, I guess, like building an ideal world or like giving people the tools to then go out and envision their own? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's a question that different journalists would answer differently. Um, so I guess I see my work as fitting into a couple different categories. One, one of which maybe sort of more directly answers your questions, which would be solutions journalism. So this is, this is journalism that 
focuses on highlighting solutions. And there's a whole organization that's focused on solutions journalism that sort of helps define what that is. So it's not just saying, here's a brand new technological innovation that this material innovation company reached out to me and they sent me a press release and they said, this thing is going to change the world. And then I write up a thing that says, this thing is going to change the world. That is not solutions journalism because it's not proven. Um, so part of what solutions journalism is doing is looking at people who are already finding the solutions to these problems and that we have some proof that it's already happening. So it's not just companies saying, hey, we created a thing. We think it's going to be game changing. It's you know, organizers who have been at the thing for two or three years and say like, here's what we can show you has already happened. Um, here's how we can show this thing is already re revolutionizing things. I do think that's part of, that's part of what I see my work as and, and something that's honestly a little bit more recent in being intentional about thinking about that. Um, so like I used Fibershed as an example earlier, that was, I wrote about Fibershed, you know, a few years ago and I would say like they are solution makers and they're they've been at it for a long time it's not like i'm writing about this new thing that's launching that may or may not end up working out it's like these are people with a track record of you know doing some of the things that they say they're trying to do solutions journalism is one sort of half of that and definitely is like maybe a more con like direct answer to how that helps us build towards the world we want to see the other half of it is like more like accountability journalism which has much more to do with pointing out the ways that the world we're living in now is not ideal. Um, so that's more of the, you know, pointing out what's not working and pointing out what um, ways that governments or corporations or individuals are falling short or lying to the public or, um, you know, whatever the case may be. So that's more of the sort of tracking down what's not working. And that's less like cheerful in some ways than the than the solution stuff, but I think is just as important because if we don't understand the ways in which our current world isn't aligned with what we want to see, how you know how will we ever move away from that? So it, it's part of it is about learning to see um, injustice or learning to see wrong so that we can hopefully change it. Yeah, definitely. And then it kind of gives the fuel for like activists and you know, folks like me to then go out and use that information to kind of either educate other people or to actually like take action to you know fight against whatever horrible stuff you're probably revealing to the world so what is or maybe you have multiple actually what uh what is a story that you've worked on that you think has really inspired your vision for an ideal world so anything that's like really excited you that you've worked on other than, you know, maybe the ones you've mentioned? I mean, that fiber shed one is one of the first ones that comes to mind in terms of something that painted a picture of like where we're headed, as opposed to just saying, here's where we are right now. I mean, I think I also, you know, there are stories about individuals too, who are like trying little things. There's a group of, of people here in New York City who they call themselves like the trashing community, but who do a lot of like dumpster diving and... Um, in some ways that can, that can highlight the ways that we're not there yet, right? In terms of, it shows how sort of, how much we live in a very like disposable, disposability focused culture. Um, but it, in some ways what they're doing is really beautiful too, and that they're like, they're going through the trash and like rescuing food and finding ways to give it away, finding ways to redistribute it to like the people who need it, um, which I 
I think that's, again, that's like, it's just these tiny pockets of resistance to the status quo and saying like, yeah, this isn't going to change the entire food system, our entire very broken industrialized food system. But also I am going to rescue all this food from the trash and I am going to like make donate it to my local shelter. And I'm going to find a way to sort of make that happen that I think that can be encouraging. I also wrote a story uh, at the beginning of last year for Atmos about um, the Catholic church and climate change. It's like, I know a lot of people have really strong feelings about the Catholic church. I totally get that. Um, but under Pope Francis, the, the sort of response of the global Catholic church to this um, encyclical that he wrote on the environment called Laudato Si has been really remarkable. I mean, it's funny, the U.S. is, the U.S. bishops have had some of the, like, they have done the least, maybe. But, like, the the Catholic Church in the Amazon, the Catholic Church in, like, the Congo Basin, the Catholic Church in the Philippines, has, again, been this really remarkable sort of picture into really ordinary people who are finding ways to fight for, you know, whatever that looks like in their own context. So, you know, in the Congo Basin, it's like, this fighting for this specific th these specific forests or in the philippines it's like those filipino catholics organizing that had a really big impact on us landing on 1.5 as the uh, the sort of like temperature marker which you know right now with the latest ipcc report um there's a lot of conversation about whether or not 1.5 is going to end up being abandoned as sort of the measure of like what we're aiming for but the fact that that even got into conversations, the fact that that even became sort of the rallying cry that really shifted the Overton window for what we thought was possible. And some of that happened from like, you know, lay Catholics in the Philippines being like, hey, this is crucial for our nation. We're an island nation. Like we're really vulnerable. We need we need the world to rally around this. And I think learning about the way that this this sort of like global network of people who are aligned around this set of beliefs even if they there are a lot of things they don't have in common was also really like um remarkable to me whether you're cat i'm not catholic but whether you're catholic or not like reading laudato si i think is it's a really remarkable um piece of writing just about like what it means to sort of have a moral and philosophical framework for responding to the climate crisis um which i also find really valuable that's that's really cool to learn about and um i think that's like i have all sorts of people i talk to you know scientists artists influencers and all that um and i think one of the cool reasons one of the reasons it's cool to, to speak to you and you know what has influenced your version of ideal is like being a journalist you have so many stories and examples of things to pull from so yeah that's very cool and hopefully people can go away and explore explore those in more more detail usually i ask people like do you have any books or pieces of art or anything like that that have influenced kind of how you see a better world but do you have any stories that you've read from other people that have kind of caught your attention I mean I read a lot of books um I'm sure that I can't imagine that you've gotten this far into the podcast without someone bringing up Robin Wall Kimmerer before but I like many people was very influenced by braiding sweetgrass and that I think painted a really great picture in some ways again of like I think a lot about the the sort of moral and ethical and philosophical and spiritual frameworks and I think Robin Wall Kimmerer also does a really great job of sort of creating some of that I also think that Kim Stanley Robinson's um ministry for the future was like 
rocked my world. <laughs> Have you had people talk about this book on this podcast before? No, but I've read it and it's amazing. I can see it on your bookshelf <laughs> behind you. Yeah, it is. It. I. I hadn't. I don't even remember how I first. I hadn't read any of his other stuff. So, for listeners who don't necessarily know who he is, Kim Stanley Robinson is a science fiction writer. Um, he's written about a lot of sort of climatey things, but he has a book that came out a couple years ago now, I guess, called The Ministry for the Future. That's basically. I mean, I don't want to ruin it for people, but it's basically like a climate future that doesn't feel like sci-fi. It just feels very realistic. It's so it's neither it's neither a dystopia where like everything goes wrong, nor is it a utopia where everything's perfect. It's just like, what if in a sort of realistically believable way we started to get our act together around climate? Um, so it's not that there aren't bad things that happen because there are, but it's like, what if the world started to take action? And that book like rewired my brain in a way that was so helpful. Um, I, I really started to, I feel like through that book, I got a picture of like, what could this actually look like? Because like you, I'm like, I'm pretty interested in solar punk. I'm much newer to sort of paying attention to it. But I feel like a lot of what I can encounter can feel like so utopian that it feels like this doesn't, I mean, it's like a nice dream and we need nice dreams to sort of know what direction to aim ourselves. But Ministry for the Future, I was like, oh, I can actually imagine this now. Like I can imagine a version of the world where we get our act together. And that was really helpful to me. And I think really helpful with like, it's not like it erases climate grief. Like obviously there's so much we're losing and there's so much we're going to lose, but it's really helpful to be able to be like, I don't have to feel silly for like, imagining a world where this is possible because like this person painted a picture of it for me um which i think is so much of what like i am hungry for in climate fiction so i spend a lot of time like i'm like reading a lot of climate fiction i'm also looking at climate fiction um or like climate storytelling on screen so in tv and film and it is really remarkable how much of it is just like dystopian apocalypse stuff which really bums me out not because we don't need those stories. I think those stories are important too. But what Kim Stanley Robinson did in this book is so powerful in that it, it it's this conversation that we sort of started with. It's like it helps you build your imagination such that you can get a sense of like how to move towards the thing that is actually worth moving towards. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I'm sure you saw my face when you mentioned it. I was like, oh, yes, someone's talking about this book. I saw um, him and a couple of other people and like Brian Eno speak at COP26 and uh, that was so magical. And also I did a panel recently and um, like a virtual one. And then I looked down at the screen at the people who were also on it and he was, Kim Stanley Robson was there. And I was like, no one told me this. And I, 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 I had to add in like a fangirl moment when I was talking to like, be like, and this book is great. <laughs> it is, it is. And I think like you were saying, like it, it's realistic. And that's kind of why I always ask people, like, what would you keep from the current world? Because as much as we, and I want like a mass revolution that is going to completely change the world there are still things we're going to want to take into that revolution with us. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really important to kind of dream big, but also hold on to things that are still important now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think the pandemic in some ways is a good, like, it gives us a little bit of a sense of that, right? Like both on the one hand, our lives have totally changed. Like if you think of going back to your 2019 self and telling them about, what our lives are like now like it's so different in some ways that it seems inconceivable and also there are a million things that are the same you know like 
if you were trying to say our lives have changed so much and also there are a lot of things that are the same, like the pandemic is a perfect example of that. And I think that's what a sort of like living within planetary boundaries would look like too. Like there are things that would be so different. And there are also some things that I'm like, it would just mean more bike lanes. Like some of it's going to be like really pedestrian is the word that came to mind, which, wow, now we're just like mixing metaphors, but some of it would just be like very like average feeling things. It'd be like very normal, but like a living within planetary boundaries would mean some of that. It would mean like a lot of bike lanes in New York city that are protected and that you don't feel like you're going to get hit by a car so that people feel like they can do that safely. You know, it's going to be a mix of like really magical, crazy things and like things that seem boring, like infrastructure, I think. That is a great point to jump off onto one of our final questions, which is my most favorite question. Speaking of magical, beautiful things, what would you invent in your ideal world if you had no limitations whatsoever. It could be magical. It could be, you could be really like high tech if you really wanted to go in that direction. What would you invent? Oh man. <laughs> I mean, this is not a new idea, but what I really like in terms of technology, there are very few things. I'm not like a, I don't tend to think that technology is how we're going to fix everything. But one of the things that I uh, would really love to see is air travel that can be done by with renewable energy. I mean, I just figuring out how to get the entire world to stop flying seems really hard to me. Um, and it's really crazy to me that we're like, oh, where might we might be able to send people to Mars, but we can't figure out how to make an airplane with a battery. Like I'm so desperate for someone to figure out how to make airplanes with batteries. And that's not to say like, I'm also really excited about the idea of like, high-speed rail and bikes and like other ways of getting around. There's actually in Ministry for the Future, they have some very fun sort of like transportation things that like we're going to get around by blimps. And I think also one of them was like boats that are some combination of wind and solar power, but they like kind of hover above the waves. That's like one of the most tech future-y thing that's in the book. Otherwise, it feels very like normal. We're already there. I kind of love the blimp idea. Like that was just very beautiful. And the fact that like in the book, like you could just land wherever, like, huh. And you get to like fly really low and see all these animals and it doesn't disrupt them because it's not roaring so loud. Um, but I think the like travel is... I both, I both am really drawn to the idea of like a much slower paced life or we all, those of us who are sort of part of this class where travel is considered normal, um, where we can do less of that and can move more slowly. And also I think it's really hard to imagine a world where we like stop going internationally. I mean, I grew up internationally. My parents live, you know, in a different state than me. There's, it's really hard to imagine a world where I can actually stop flying totally. Um, and so I want someone to figure out how to make airplanes that are powered by batteries that can be used like wind or solar to sort of charge them up. Honestly, this podcast is becoming like proof that there is demand for some sort of transportation device. <laughs> like so often people are like, I just want to be able to like go and visit family who live far away without killing the planet, if that can be a thing. Um, so yeah, hopefully one day we will get that. And on a final note, I always like people to come away feeling like they can actually do something to make some of this a reality, maybe a more slow paced life with more like community involved actions, as you've mentioned. So what do you think is one thing listeners can do to make this world a reality? This is going to sound 
maybe a little woo woo, but I genuinely believe like building relationships where you are is climate action. Um, the more that I have been talking about this with some of the communities that I'm in, the more I'm realizing like so many of the things that we want don't happen without relationships. Like you want to, you live in a apartment building and you want to see solar panels on the roof. That is not going to happen if you don't get to know your neighbors and figure out how to organize within your building. You want to be part of a community garden, like, great, you're probably gonna have to meet some people in order for that to happen. Um, you wanna advocate for protected bike lanes in your community, like, you're gonna have to organize with people that live in the community. You're gonna have to figure out who your sort of local representatives are. So I think that truly, like, the most doable and the most sort of, like, mandatory thing, I think, too, is, like, we have to start building communities around these things and building sort of coalitions. And that's some of what I'm trying to figure out how to do even myself too. But the little glimpses of it that I've gotten have been really, really beautiful. And like, they sort of self-justify, like you don't have to convince yourself it's a good thing. It both is going to have a bigger impact and also just like feels good to like get to know people and to build relationship with them in pursuit of the things that you want to see in the world. Yeah, I've felt 10 times more than that, 100 times better since connecting with people who feel the same way as I do in, in fighting against all this stuff. So yeah, stronger together totally. for sure. There we have it. Thank you so much um, for joining me. And yeah, thank you again for all the amazing work you do on putting out stories that inspire kind of solutions and ideas for the future because we need more of that. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for you know, sort of taking this initiative to try to encourage us all to build out our imaginations around this. I really do think it's a, a powerful exercise and like an important thing for all of us to be doing. It's like, if we can't imagine it, we can't get there. So let's start by imagining it and then figure out how to sort of build the road from there. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Idealistically. If you would like to support the podcast further, you can follow it on Instagram at IdealisticallyPod and on Twitter at, at IdealisticallyP. And you can find me, Tomea Gregory, at, at Tomea. Also a quick reminder that if the podcast platform you are listening to this on allows you to, please do leave a rating or a review because it allows more people to find the podcast and for them to know that it's actually worth listening to. So thank you very much. If you do go ahead and do that, it means a lot to me. I hope this episode has inspired you to go away and start envisioning a better future. What would you idealistically want in an ideal world? Sound and editing by myself and music by Stowe Gregory. Come to this.